Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 49, The Road to Cajamarca. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Before we begin, I'll remind you to check out the website, ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com. There you will find relevant pictures and maps for each episode. And for episodes like this, it will come in handy to reference those maps on the website. So that again is ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com. Now then, in our last episode, we saw Pizarro's expedition to Peru nearly turn into an utter disaster. After nearly all the men on his expedition left to return to Panama, Pizarro and 16 men continued on and stumbled upon Tumbes. There they caught a glimpse of Peru and the riches the land had to offer. However, Pizarro had a deadline to keep, so he left Tumbes, explored a bit further south, and headed back to Panama. This week, we'll see the conquistadors' effort to return to Peru and seek out the one man who rules the land. Enjoy. Being buried in debt, Pizarro had to borrow money from his friends to fund his next trip to Spain. That is right, Spain. Pizarro wanted to try to establish himself as the discoverer of this new land called Peru. Notably, Pizarro did not bring his business partner, Amalgro, with him. Why? We don't quite know, but one could suspect that Pizarro wanted whatever rewards to come out of this journey to be for himself and not for his partner. And indeed, Pizarro did receive quite a reward for his services after giving his account to the Spanish court in July of 1529. Pizarro was named governor for life and was given the right to explore, as well as conquer, the land of what was then dubbed New Castile, which was everything 200 leagues south of the island of Puna. Others would not go empty-handed, though. Rees was named Grand Pilot of the Southern Ocean. Candia was promoted to Captain of Artillery. Almagro was made the Commander of Tumbes, which is something. With his governorship in hand, Pizarro went home to Trujillo. But this wasn't just about attending a family reunion. Pizarro set about recruiting, bringing on all four of his brothers, Hernando, Gonzalo, Juan, and a stepbrother, Martin. We can assume one of our sources, Francisco de Jerez, along with the brothers of Pizarro, joined over 120 other men in Seville, from which Pizarro set out for Panama. When he arrived, Amagro, despite his shiny new title as commander of Tumbes, was not happy. 
Given that Almagro had been the one who rescued Pizarro from starvation several times, losing an eye for doing so at one point, not to mention having to give the conquistador a pep talk, one might understand why Almagro felt overlooked. Had he and Pizarro not been partners in the original endeavor? Hadn't he sacrificed enough to get a share of Pizarro's titles? The cracks in their relationship were already beginning to widen. But for Pizarro, there was no time to discuss Amagro's hurt feelings. He and his men, 183 of them, had his supplies, including 37 horses, and had his ships, three of those. With all that, he set sail in late December or early January, 1530 to 1531, respectively. They sailed to Coaque, capturing some silver and gold as they awaited for Amagro to return with supplies. After waiting several months, the supplies finally arrived and Pizarro wasted no time in setting out once again. Pizarro and some men seemed to have marched along the coast while the ships sailed alongside them. They arrived at Guayaquil, from which point the ships ferried Pizarro's party over to the island of Puna. The inhabitants of Puna welcomed the Christians. It should be stated that I've seen in various accounts that some inhabitants believed that the Christians were Viracochas, returning to the land after having sailed away many, many years ago. However, it seems that these Viracochas had overstayed their welcome on Puna. The Sinchi and his men planned to take the Christians by surprise, but their plot was discovered and a preemptive attack was carried out. The Sinchi was taken captive, but some of Pizarro's men and their horses were injured. However, Pizarro recognized how rich and fertile the island was, and didn't want the island destroyed from a war with the native population. So despite the Sinchi's hostility, he was well cared for as a prisoner, and a deal was struck. The Sinchi would be released and keep the island of Puna in line for the Spanish crown. Leaving a token force behind on Puna, Pizarro and the rest of the expedition sailed along the coast and back to Tumbes. The ships moored off the coast, and Pizarro and the natives ferried supplies back to the shore, with a couple of Christians on each balsa or raft. However, the local population turned on the conquistadors and captured one of the balsas, taking three of the crew as prisoners. The rest of the expedition landed on the mainland as quickly as they could, only to find the population up in arms. They made their way into the town, though, and occupied several houses that were constructed like a fortress, taking hostages in the process. A messenger was sent to the Sinchi, imploring for peace and the safe return of the captured Christians. We are told that if the Sinchi refused, Pizarro would make war upon him and the town until they were all destroyed. For several days there was no answer, and the local population had reinforced their position on the opposite side of the river. 
However, the sentry eventually invited the Spanish to approach, revealing that the prisoners they had captured had already been killed. Enraged, Pizarro ordered his men to attack, and they killed, injured, and captured as many of the inhabitants as they could. When he saw that the punishment had been sufficient, Pizarro again sent a message offering peace if the Cinchi would accept vassalage. And after receiving assurances that he would not be injured, the Cinchi, Quilamasa, came forward. Much of the town had been abandoned due to a great disease that was sweeping the land, and by war. Pizarro had no intentions of lingering there in Tumbes, and left in mid-May 1532, making his way inland. As he did so, the governor of this land, that he had never been to, informed villages that they were all now vassals of the Spanish crown. Hey you, yeah you, congratulations, you're now part of the Spanish empire. Oh yeah, and you have to convert to Catholicism. Sorry, part of the deal. It might not surprise you to hear that not everyone was so willing to just accept all this without a good fight. After all, many of these groups didn't exactly just roll over or accept Inca rule and their religion either. It does seem like Jerez and the other conquistadors were a tad surprised by the local objection, though. From Jerez. Afterwards, the governor learned that certain chieftains in the hills would not submit, although they had received the orders of his majesty. So he sent a captain with 25 horse and foot to reduce them to the service of his majesty. As the passage suggests, where there was refusal, there was a battle between the conquistadors and the local groups. The Christians ended up winning these battles, but given what the population had been through at this point, it's not a shock. Disease and years of civil war had taken its toll on the population. Plus, many of their fighting aged men were likely leagues away as the conclusion of the Inca Civil War was taking place as the conquistadors made their way inland. Of course, there were groups that were not loyal to the Inca, or if they were loyal, had sided with Huascar and had suffered at the hands of Atahualpa. Either way, they saw the conquistadors as a type of weapon to be wielded against their old enemies. Around this time, Almagro had arrived off the coast with provisions from Panama. No troops were included, but word got to Pizarro that Almagro had the intention of making his own colony. Pizarro quickly had a letter written, imploring Almagro to reconsider doing this. Pizarro saw the establishment of another colony as a rival to his own, but he claimed that it would be a disservice to their sovereign, Charles I, King of Spain, or, as history typically recognizes him, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. I don't have the time nor the capacity to go into all the details of Charles V, but we are talking about someone who would go on to become one of the most powerful men in all of human history. But Amagro wasn't the only issue Pizarro had to deal with. A man named Almotaxe, a friend of the local Lachira people, 
was forming a plot to kill several Christians. But, like at Puna, the plot was discovered and Amotakse captured. He and several of his followers were killed via auto de fe. Meanwhile, the Sinchi of the Lachira were given the ability to govern Amotakse's land until one of Amotakse's sons became of age. Shortly after the death of Amotakse, at a place called Tangarara, the colony of San Miguel was founded. There, whatever gold the conquistadors had acquired was melted down and sent to Panama, and eventually back to Spain, where the Spanish crown was expecting their 20% cut. But Pizarro did more than just melt down the gold that was taken. He, along with Father Friar Vincent de Valverde, began to reorganize the inhabitants of the area into encomiendas. In the encomienda system, each settler of the colony would be assigned native inhabitants to assist the settlers in working the land. And I'm using air quotes when I say assist, by the way. In return for their toil on the land, the natives would be converted to Catholicism. What a reward. But in the eyes of the zealous Spanish, this was a reward. Eternal life could be theirs. It would just cost them their blood, sweat, tears, and for many, their earthly lives. As San Miguel was being established, Pizarro is told that the route to the capital of Cuzco is through a town called Cajamarca, and that Atahualpa, the Sapa Inca, or king as the Spanish would refer to him as, is in the vicinity of that town. Thus, Pizarro quickly decided to gather all the men and provisions he could and left San Miguel on September 24, 1532, to meet this king who governed such a rich land. Pizarro reached the Piura Valley in four days and stayed there for ten more, preparing for the march. He had around 67 horses and, and 110 infantry, mostly with crossbows, but a few had an arquebus on hand, an early form of the long gun or rifle. These guns were large and sometimes, depending on the size, needed a stand or tripod to assist in holding them steady. They were also quite loud. Continuing on, Pizarro came across a group who had suffered a defeat at the hands of Atahualpa's army. The leader, a man called Pabor, peacefully submitted to Pizarro, who assigned the Sinchi and those he presided over to San Miguel. However, Pabor warned Pizarro that the way to Cajamarca was steep and narrow. But of greater concern for the conquistadors, was that there was a garrison of Inca troops waiting for the Christians at Caxas. Pizarro dispatched a captain by the name of Hernando de Soto, yes, that Hernando de Soto, to scout ahead and to see if peace could be made with this garrison. He was also given strict instructions not to pillage or provoke the natives. Remember, despite their technological advantages, the conquistadors were still in a land where the terrain was unfamiliar and they were far outnumbered. As Soto scouted ahead, 
Pizarro marched to Zaran and was welcomed with lodgings and supplies. While he and his men rested, Pizarro received a message from Soto. The young captain had succeeded in securing peace, and upon his return to camp, Soto says he only found Casas by capturing quote-unquote spies and obtaining information from them. In other words, torturing them. Soto goes on to say that the people of Casas were in a commotion and they were pacified. Read into those two words what you will, but eventually the Sinchi came out and described the situation of the town and the empire to Soto. And this is where Pizarro hears of the civil war that had been taken place between Atahualpa and Huascar, the plethora of gold in Cuzco, and how the town of Casas had suffered at the hands of Atahualpa. From Jerez, he added that it was a year since Cuzco, he means Huascar, son of old Cuzco, Juanacapac, lost those villages when they were taken by his brother Atahualpa, who rebelled and conquered the land, exacting great tribute and daily perpetrating cruelties. For they not only have to give their goods as tribute, but also their sons and daughters. Whether the passage is embellished or not is difficult to say. As victor over the town, Atahualpa likely exacted punishment on the local population for resisting. However, too harsh a punishment would drastically reduce an already depleted population. And if such a thing was carried out everywhere that resisted, it would have had lasting consequences upon the empire. Soto continued on with his story. He scouted even further ahead, admiring the well-engineered road, the stone buildings with no mortar between them, the tambos which housed troops and pilgrims, and the kolkas full of shoes, salt, meat, as well as other goods. Without a doubt, the conquistador was impressed with the infrastructure of the Inca Empire. I should mention, though, that Soto did not return alone. A messenger from Atahualpa's camp traveled with them. He presented Pizarro with ducks or geese, cups, and a message. According to the message, Atahualpa desired to be friends with the Christians, and he wanted to receive them peacefully at Cajamarca. Pizarro was happy to hear this, and claimed to the messenger that he and his fellow Christians wanted the same. The governor offered Atahualpa any assistance he needed in defeating his enemies, and offered the messenger food and rest. Soon, though, the messenger had to return to Atahualpa, but was given a shirt and some items to take back to the Sapa Inca. The presents the messenger had brought with him were sent back to San Miguel, along with some cloth, which Jerez couldn't help but comment on. It is wonderful how highly this cloth is prized in Spain for its workmanship. It is looked upon more as silk than as wool. The clothes are enriched with many patterns and figures in beaten gold, very well embroidered. 
After resting for a few days, Pizarro and his men marched through the Satura Desert, only to come upon an abandoned fortress with no water. They marched on and arrived in Motupe some four days later. From there, they marched through the Leche Valley and continued to be received in peace. They ended up capturing two unsuspecting men. They were tortured for information pertaining to what Atahualpa's true intentions were. Eventually, the men replied that Atahualpa intended to attack the Christians and had their forces waiting for them in the mountains. With this in mind, Pizarro asked the local Sinchi the size of Atahualpa's army. The Sinchi replied that the Sapa Inca had about 50,000 men with him at Cajamarca. When he heard such a number, Pizarro said that the Sinchi must be mistaken. To which the Sinchi explained how the Inca army was organized and how their numbers were counted. It was no mistake. He had seen the army firsthand as they took 600 women and 600 children away from his town in the Sintu Valley. Pizarro then returned to the Sinchi who governed the land in and around the colony of San Miguel. He asked the Sinchi if he would go to Atahualpa's camp as a spy. To this request, the Sinchi refused. However, the Sinchi said that he would be happy to go as a messenger. Pizarro accepts this, but requests the messenger to inform them if there are indeed troops waiting for them in the mountains. As to the message itself to Atahualpa, Pizarro wanted the Sapa Inca to know that the Christians had been peaceful and friendly to those who had been welcoming them, and would make war upon those who sought it. I'll let you be the judge as to how peaceful Pizarro and his men were up to this point. After three more days of marching, Pizarro reached the foot of the Andes, in the Jequitepeque Valley. Here the conquistador found himself at a crossroads. He could continue along the coast to Chincha and then up into the mountains straight to Cusco. Or he could pick the mountain road that passed through Cajamarca. Pizarro asked his men what they would like to do. Some thought it would be better to go to Chincha to avoid the treacherous terrain in the chance of an ambush. However, Pizarro said that if they did so, the native people would say that it was out of fear that they avoided Atahualpa, and that this would boost the confidence of the people of the land. He persuaded them to have courage and faith in God, that despite the numbers against them, they would be victorious. Here we see Pizarro using religion and faith as a tool to motivate his men. Whether the event is embellished a bit to show Pizarro's fearlessness and unwavering faith in God, we can only speculate. I find it hard to imagine one not having an inkling of fear climbing those mountain roads in an unfamiliar and possibly hostile land. The road was difficult and steep at times, as if the conquistadors were climbing stairs. The cold soon became so great that some of the horses, who were not used to such cold, soon suffered frostbite. However, their party found no awaiting soldiers or ambush, and stayed in a tambo. 
Now, Pizarro's messenger did not go alone, and one of his companions returned to the Christians with a message. Atahualpa had made his return to Cajamarca three days ago, and much to the relief of Pizarro, no forces were on the road opposing their approach. However, the group had to stay put. Their baggage train still had to catch up with them, so the conquistadors huddled in their cotton tents and stoked fires to fend off the cold. Even the water they had collected could not be drunk until it was warmed by the fire. It wasn't long, though, that messengers from Atahualpa once again arrived. They brought ten llamas for the Christians to eat. As the llamas were being taken care of, the messengers asked Pizarro when he thought he would arrive to Cajamarca, to which the conquistador replied that they would be there as soon as they could. Pizarro then asked the messengers how Atahualpa's campaign was going. With this question, Pizarro was able to uncover quite a bit. Atahualpa had been in Cajamarca for five days now, but a bulk of his troops went south. The campaign went very well for Atahualpa, and now he had the capital and his rival, Huascar, in his possession. Just from this little bit, Pizarro was able to glean the course of the civil war, that Atahualpa was without much of his army, and that Huascar, the rival to Atahualpa, could possibly be turned into an ally if Atahualpa proved to be too treacherous. Of course, Pizarro showed nothing but happiness for Atahualpa's victories. However, the conquistador then droned on about how he had conquered greater nations, how great his own emperor was, and how he was friendly to all nations, unless war was made upon him first. Excuse my inaudible eye roll, but though Pizarro's speech may not impress me, it did impress the messengers, who asked to be dismissed so they could give an update to their Sapa Inca. Pizarro set out next morning and marched until dark and slept in a village that they had come across. As they settled in, another messenger from Atahualpa arrived and relayed that the Sapa Inca would receive them in peace, but added praises to Atahualpa and to the greatness of his army. He brought in six caros of fine gold, had Chicha poured in them, and then distributed them to Pizarro and his men, saying that Atahualpa very much wanted Pizarro to be his friend and brother. The men drank, and the messenger said he would travel with them as they continued on to Cajamarca. However, two days later, after the conquistadors had made some more progress in their journey, Pizarro's own messenger returned. He saw the messenger of Atahualpa and attacked him. Pizarro ordered the two men to be pulled apart and questioned the actions of his own messenger, to which he answered, This is a great rogue, this carrier of Atahualpa. He comes here to tell lies, pretending to be a great man. Atahualpa is in warlike array outside Cajamarca on the plain. He has a large army, and I found the town empty. I went there to camp and saw many people and flocks, and a quantity of tents, and all was ready for war. The messenger went on about how he was refused entrance to Atahualpa's quarters, and claimed that he received threats on his own life. 
One can almost picture the slow and long look Pizarro gave Atahualpa's messenger. Almost asking, you, um, you want to explain all of that? And Atahualpa's messenger did. The town being empty, it was left open for the Christians to quarter in. The large army camp, Atahualpa had just been in a war, so of course he was in camp. His refusal to see Pizarro's messenger? He was fasting due to the custom, and nobody would have dared to disrupt his fast. Had he known that Pizarro's messenger was there, the Sapa Inca would have welcomed him with all haste, though. Pizarro tells Atahualpa's messenger that he believes him. But let's be honest, what else was he going to do in that situation? He was deep in the mountains and just a day or so away from Cajamarca. Running away wasn't an option. Not only would the embarrassment be too great, but the conquistadors would be hunted down in no time as they stumbled along the Capacnan. So, according to Jerez, Pizarro smiled and nodded, all the while believing his own messenger's tale, no doubt a bit unsure of what lay ahead. The next day, the Christians started again and rested on a plain in the evening as more messengers bearing food came from Atahualpa. Pizarro was informed that he was near his destination. Upon hearing this, the conquistador told the messengers that he hoped to arrive in Cajamarca by noon the next day, and that he hoped to meet Atahualpa then. However, Pizarro misjudged how much progress he would make. As the sun was beginning to get low in the sky, Pizarro and his men came to a vista overlooking the valley. In the distance, they saw the fires and tents of Atahualpa's camp, and were amazed at how large it was. They still had to march a bit further to get to the town. So it was just before dusk on November 15th, 1532, when Pizarro entered Casa Marca.